Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 25th episode of the Truth Island podcast. For the majority of time that humans have occupied the earth, the majority of our work has existed in the realm of being outside. Up until the Industrial Revolution, most work performed was considered agricultural. Most people never leaving two miles outside their immediate home. The dependency on agriculture forced man to be a lot more cognizant of the climate around him. A dry spell could mean a poor harvest, which in turn could lead to famine and widespread starvation. It was thus man's dependency on the forces of nature that perhaps allowed him to come up with many of the religious and philosophical traditions that we enjoy today. However, as larger numbers of us now work from home, a great barrier has been erected in which people no longer need to concern themselves on the weather outside in order to make a living. The sound of birds, crickets, and other wildlife have all been replaced with the sounds of car horns, radios, that may have been turned up just a bit too much. Those living in a large city also lack the once vivid night sky that inspired possibly all of our mythological tales and beliefs. As man has certainly gained much in terms of material comfort, he has perhaps lost something in his very own nature. Helping me to sort this issue, I am once again joined by Alexander. Alex, how are you feeling these days looking outside your Brooklyn apartment? Well, the weather has been consistently warm. It's been an <laughs> interesting experience. I'm on, I'm on the ground level. So my view is drastically different than what it would be if I was walking or for somebody in New York City on a top floor. It's been pretty voyeuristic. People are um, spending a little more time outside than usual. So I guess it's returning slightly to normal. And I found what you were saying very interesting, actually, the relationship between past lives and humanity compared to how much the weather affects their day how much a drought or a rainstorm can drastically alter the landscape of their lives to a point of starvation displacement and conquest really yeah it can be funny because i imagine when you're sitting in your brooklyn apartment it's nice that the weather is nice but if it rains how much of an effect would that have on you? Personally, I'm severely affected by the rain in a positive manner. Um, I've always loved the rain. There's some sort of relationship I have with rain that brings in a sense of serenity. Something about the barometric pressure change, the, the smell of grass, calming drops of rain on, on leaves, and how the whole world kind of goes quiet is uh, always had a profound effect on my psyche. Um, even as a kid, me and my parents, we would be outside watching rainstorms. You know, I grew up in the South, so our thunderstorms are very, very different than most places in the country. This idea of embracing the rain, because I, I'm probably guilty of this myself. When it's like thunder showers, I close my windows, I close the blinds. Like I don't want to see with it. I kind of take solace in the fact that I can lock myself up in my apartment and be like, okay, well, good thing I don't have to go out there and get drenched today. But, but tell me more about that because like usually rain is perceived as something bad or something to be avoided. T tell me about how you've kind of psychologically embraced that. You know, I don't really know 
what it was. I didn't really know what it was originally that that brought my attention to rain. I think it was just playing sports outside huh. and rain and camping. And I, I do have one fond memory of rain is when I learned how to ride a bike. I was learning how to ride a bike and I kept falling off. So my parents tied all these different pillows to my butt. <laughs> so when I fell, it wouldn't hurt as much. And I distinctly remember it's starting to pour. And this was in Georgia. So rainstorms are very common. And I stayed outside anyway and just kept driving to learn how to ride a bike because I wanted to learn how to ride a bike. I mean, my block was all about these bikes. Let me tell you, it was kind of that age where the slightly older sixth, seventh grader would build a bike ramp and you would courageously try to do a backflip on it and potentially <laughs> break your face open. So those, those days. So my concept of the rain is always interesting and I can say definitively one of the most soothing sensations um, that I can experience is being under a tent, listening to the rain hit my tent while I'm mm. in my sleeping bag. And that was a pretty significant memory in my childhood. So it could just be the repetition of that. That's awesome. You know, I remember when I was, I think, 15, I had, and this is no substitute, but I had one of those uh, Walgreens alarm clocks that could produce that kind of sound and that helped me fall asleep at night. I, again, that's no substitute for the real thing, but it's kind of interesting that that's like a hot selling item of, of nature. Like a lot of people will play gentle meditation music and it's all, mm. it's all a semblance of nature. It's like, we, we, we need that in our lives. Like those natural sounds like help us cope and help us sleep. This has been a nagging question for me the past few months, um, especially in quarantine. So I've felt it significantly more. Like my whole, since quarantine, my life has drastically changed like most people. The pacing of my life has changed and therefore it's left room for me to start exploring thoughts that I didn't necessarily have the, the structure to listen to before. So there's all these new indirect questions of what my needs are in terms of a holistic health I've been drastically rewriting that in my head. Like, what, what, what are my needs? Not what, are my, not what are my wants. If I could boil all my needs down to a bag, could I do that? How am I connected as a human being, as a man, to this planet? Do I feel grounded in nature? Do I feel natural in my environment? Do things feel like they have that magic that nature has that you just is just indescribable and also the utter terror behind it too that nature has am i in those elements am i connected to those spiritual concepts am i um am i part of this world or am i struggling against it what what i don't want is like is it sisyphean like sisyphus so whatever that would be i don't want a sisyphus modern life against nature to the point where it just is an impossibility to overcome and it's a toil. I wonder how much power there is in just accepting nature instead. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned syphysis because I think that our relationship to nature has always been an adversarial one when we relied upon it for food. So I, I think this idea that like, oh, it's raining, oh, it's dry out. Like now we kind of casually think of these things as just 
background noise, like, oh, it's raining, whatever. But in, in our, for most of human history, these things meant whether we would live or die. Like they meant mm -hmm. whether we would have a harvest, uh, whether we would survive. So as man has conquered nature, I, I think that that relationship has gone from an adversarial one to sort of, I wouldn't say we're walk, we're working hand in hand with nature, but we're, we're kind of like, we, we see us, we, we sometimes have the hubris to think that us and nature are actually at the same level. So I find that interesting that um, in your opinion, it's adversarial from the beginning. I think it was, I think it was different. I, I don't know if I understand what you mean by adversarial, but I would also argue that maybe it's more adversarial now. Huh? than in how, the past. How so? Well, I think adversaries are created just with a lack of understanding. And a lot of people just don't understand nature. They don't understand that people are out there hunting for their food to feed themselves and their family. People freak out that there are men in clothing armed with a bow and arrow spending three days to, to, to find one elk that they don't waste to bring sustenance of clean meat. People see that now as some sort of silly trophy hunting grossness. And of course there's trophy hunting, but this is different. Whereas back in the day, people were absolutely connected to it. There was a sense of belonging to nature. You know, there was stories wrapped around the first discovery of the blood moon or how Lady Artemis would lead a hunt or tracking elk early in the caveman area era to uh, by constellations that they would carve out in, in elk bone, be tracking herds. And then planting, of course, was the dawn of civilization and how important that was and culture was founded. And it's the reason why wheat was so important in ancient Rome and why ancient Egypt discovered their religion because of just the, the sheer extremes of their nature and what that meant and also how it taught people about cycles and the way science and the hermetic knowledge was based around nature. Just all of this really stemmed from it. Whereas now it's, we're trying to build things that overcome human nature more than actual nature. I think the, the struggle is, is humanity has these ridiculous expectations and nature doesn't work on that timescale. Therefore, we have to invent things to overcome nature so that it's not a problem. I mean, we have to fly halfway across the world to go say hello to family. I could think of nature not as an adversary, but as a mentor. When, we, when the ancient mm. Egyptians kind of gathered around the Nile, like the Nile is teaching them, this is how you produce agriculture. I'm not, I'm not trying to starve you guys out. I'm not trying to like wipe you as a species out. But if you work with me, I can teach you how to build resources. I can teach you to build food. And that brings in the best of us because we learn the best. Like we learn to work together hunting that animal uh, in, in a tribe or in, in a group of, or in a hunting pack. So I, I think that's very beautiful that, that nature is teaching us how best to work with one another because it's, we need to work with one another for our survival. I will throw this little monkey wrench in there is something such as a earthquake is that is that also following the uh, the mentor relationship or is that just something that needs to be overcome you mean like cataclysms and yeah well i would juxtapose our modern view on that with our previous view i mean back in the day earthquakes were best described as 
Atlas shrugging his shoulders or, <laughs> you know, a Titan walking across the earth or some sort of anger from Hades or gods above or some sort of um, divine repercussion for sins created by the civilization. Whereas now we understand that really it's just the earth flexing to try to repair itself, to create new opportunities and to always replenish, destroy, replenish, destroy. I would say that now that's definitely more adversarial because we don't have a sense of magic attached to it. There's no higher, it's not connected to any kind of higher understanding. It's, and I'm, I come from a family of scientists. I love science. I love earth science, but the one downside science has is because it's so accurate and backed by evidence, it kind of debases what could be taken in as a higher meaning from it. And that has been like a reaction to rationalism and, you know, um, and the enlightenment period and things like that. But this kind of reminds me of uh, in China, they had something called the mandate of heaven. And if there was an earthquake or something like that, it actually meant that the emperor was doing a really bad job and you might want to replace that emperor. Now, Obviously, we know that earthquakes and all these things are completely arbitrary. You could have an awesome emperor sitting on the throne and there's an earthquake and now you're replacing someone who's actually doing a really terrific job. But at the same time, I like this idea that something happens, something like we could even think of, even though this is not natural, but like coronavirus, it, it's not mm. a natural disaster, but it's a natural virus that, that somehow got out here. And it could lead to this change of like, okay, what are we doing wrong here? The gods are angry at us. There's, there's some kind of punishment being bestowed upon us. And with science, that kind of takes away that, that uh, spiritual reflection, if you would, because now it's just, oh, well, science explains that uh, earthquake. I don't need to actually look inward and, and reflect about my morality. And you're right. I think something is lost by that. It's, it's pretty amazing how much nature changes history like that. Have you ever heard of uh, the divine winds? I've heard the phrase, but could you tell me, could you remind me about that? Yeah. So this was a period of time in Japanese history where they were getting consistently invaded by the Mongolian empire, which levied lots of uh, units from Korea and would send them in to basically try to invade all different parts of that side of the Pacific. And this particular time they were sending in a massive invasion uh, into Japan. The legend goes that a divine wind swept away this enormous fleet and destroyed half of them two, three times over to a point where it felt so coincidental that the Japanese saw this like natural event as some sort of mandate of heaven or some sort of divine wind. You know, they saw it as the sole means for them to succeed in defending themselves from this invasion and probably the main reason why Japan wasn't invaded by Mongolia. It's, it's also like the Greeks who look to oracles to sort of validate like whether they should go to war or not. Like, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, there's smoke coming from that volcano. I guess God, Zeus is telling us like, we better back off right now. Mm -hmm. And again, if there's a scientist listening, they're probably like, well, those are primitive people and they're looking to things that could be explained by science. But it, 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 might, it might cause that, the, the Japanese, or it might cause the Greeks to say to themselves, okay, it looks like the forces of nature 
are going against us. Is there something fundamentally wrong with our civilization that might be causing that to happen? Like maybe we do have like a very corrupt system or maybe we are treating our, our servants really poorly or our slaves really badly. And maybe we need to kind of re-examine that so that nature is on our side and the gods are giving us the thumbs up again. My personal philosophy with that is I would say yes. Like I think that when nature reels itself it's doing it for some sort of balance purpose. I just think that that's the essential law of nature is that it's always trying to rebalance itself. And the more we imbalance it, the more extreme the rebalancing may become. So in terms of the pandemic and coronavirus and all that, of course, I see that climate change, you know, I see that as some sort of slow, unstoppable attempt of mother nature to reclaim what's rightfully is, which is this planet. So that's the way I look at it. You know, and I see those indications as some sort of message. Maybe I'm grasping. I no, certainly I, look at it that way. I, I think it could very well be some type of message. And that doesn't mean we abandon the scientific um, explanation of, right. you know, depleting ozone layer and uh, all, all like we, we and the greenhouse effect. It doesn't mean that we throw all of that knowledge into the trash can, but it could also be a way of nature telling us you guys are being very, very, very selfish right now. And you're wasting a lot and you're consuming way more than a species ought to consume. And I think there is like a moral messaging that, that this planet might be telling us. And I'm not trying to get all hippy dippy on, on you like that. I, I totally believe that the science comes first, but I think that's a nice backdrop kind of moral explanation as to what we're going through. I completely agree. And it's just kind of nice to know that it's tied in, but there is a need there, right? There is like a, an organic need for a human being to be connected with nature. And I wonder how much that can be alienated from. Are, do we have to be alienated? Is the future completely dependent on us being alienated from nature? I wonder, I mean, you've been hearing about this neural link that Elon Musk has been inventing. Yeah, it's all over the news. And they're getting very close to having it somewhat operational. So we're talking like 15, 20 years, man. People are going to have implants in their brains. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's something I, I actually haven't been doing like full research because I'm always skeptical. And I always, I always think that um, human optimism can sometimes be compromised by human incompetence. Like we say we're going to invent flying cars. We say we're going to do all of this. And I'm like, okay, let's see, let's see the prototype. Let's see how long it takes to get off that ground. So I, I always, and I, I kind of see human incompetence as sometimes being a positive thing because maybe it allows us to fail a few more times. Like, do you remember in 1997 uh, when they, clo when they cloned uh, the first sheep, Dolly? I remember that. And, and people thought, like, I remember at that time, people were like, yeah. everyone's going to have a double. Everyone's going to have a doppelganger of themselves. And that's going to be like the new norm. But then, you know, there's limitations. And now they're like, oh, well, we haven't perfected this. And here we are, you know, 23 years later. And, we, you know, no one, no one here has a clone of themselves that they're, you know, playing basketball with. So, right. I, I, and I, I think that's a positive thing. I think it's positive that we kind of reach some of these limitations in science because it allows us to pause every now and then and say, wait a minute, do we really want these chips in our mind? Do we really want to kind of have this, this full alienation with nature? And I, I think, I think that's good because every pause, every hill we have to climb is another 
moment for us to have like a moral conversation of if this is mm -hmm. the right direction to begin with. I think we're a lot closer to clones than people think, quite honestly. You know, I don't believe that there are clones of people walking around. That's ridiculous. Um, and if they were, they wouldn't be cloning me or you. You know, they'd be cloning uh, Elon Musk. They'd be cloning um, those, that level of, of, of uh, engineers and thinkers and scientists. Um, but we do have things like CRISPR. We do have things where we can genetically enhance or change uh, before development to a point where it's completely off the natural path. I mean, artificial insemination is one. Like, so that's already alienating. So I wonder in terms of what, where the momentum is going, I really do believe that our momentum is going towards the alienation of mankind from nature. Sure. It just, it just seems to be what's happening. Progress. You can't stop progress. I mean, just going out to space, we have to do that. Right. Yeah. Because you know, in space, you would have to wear a spacesuit. You, you can't even breathe in natural oxygen. Like you, 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 you can't, I mean, unless we figure, and even if we did come up with some kind of weird dome-like right. apparatus, we're still living under a dome. We're not necessarily right. partaking in the natural uh, environment. Like our, our bodies were not evolved to walk on the moon. They were, walk, they were evolved to walk on the earth. Right. So yes, and, and even, even scaling it back a little bit, I think this whole idea of working from home, like even, even if we take it at a very simple level, the idea that we have now been conditioned to, like when we say, oh man, I had a hard day of work. That work for a lot of us was sitting in a comfy chair, drinking coffee behind a keyboard. But we see that as being a really, really taxing and hard day. Whereas if I said, man, I had a really hard day of work 200 years ago, I was probably like really sunburnt I, I probably was covered in sweat. And I think if our ancestors saw us sitting behind screens and complaining, they'd be like, they'd freak out. Yeah, they'd freak out. They'd be like, what are you complaining about? You're sitting behind a screen drinking all day. Yeah. And I think that they would be like, wow, these people look really weak. We should conquer them. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do wonder about like what my ancestors would think and recent ancestors. I mean, you've been peeling back to the 1940s, 1950s, 1930s so different yeah and the the rate of which we're alienating ourselves from nature is so exponential at this moment that it's a little shocking we all i think we're in perfect agreement that if nature can prevent us from freezing it can prevent us from starving like we, we we've got to use the technology to sustain yes. human life like like sustaining yes. human life is probably of the param paramount importance i'm wondering when when it comes down to like embracing nature, like brainstorm with me here. What things could we do to sort of reintegrate nature back into our lives? I would think that not believing that human life is paramount to, to natural life is a good first step because I don't, <laughs> I don't believe that. You know, I think that that's, um, I think that that's a strictly human idea and part of the acceptance of what nature is and what natural is and the sustenance of the sun, what we can eat from the ground, the way that our feet spread uh, as we walk on, you know, grass, the way that we feel when we're sitting on a beach or the, the visions that we have of life when we're sitting on top of a mountain. Um, all that's been there a lot longer than humanity has. Mm. All that will be there once humanity is gone. Like humanity is not paramount. I think that it's really cool that we, evolved into this 
super species that we're able to think about this and have a conversation over, you know, a podcast and be able to discuss these things. But I think that needs to start first because the reality is, is there are things far more important than us. And until we respect that, we're not able to work in a symbiotic relationship the way we could be. And I think this is kind of the essence of, oh, you know, mankind was put here on earth to take care of everything and all that like religious context. But I think that needs to start. I think that once we start building things with that in mind, we're going to see a drastic change. We need to realize that if we alienate ourselves from nature, uh, we are doomed to fail because we were built to exist in nature and therefore, if we alienate ourselves completely from it, we will fail. So how, how would this idea sound? Like maybe we're not there yet, but I, I like this idea, and, and this obviously depends on the climate you're living in, that maybe, maybe when you're at work, there's like mandatory, okay, guys, we're taking a two-hour walk or something. Like we already have this shift where a lot of these corporations have like treadmills and, and standing stations and all this other stuff. But that's kind of addressing the need to exercise. But I'm wondering if, if when possible, we had a longer period of recess. Maybe in schools, we need like a two-hour recess where kids just walk outside and, and, and we slowly start that process of like tearing down the walls and mm -hmm. getting us back into the physical. Yes. Oh, that's, that's a huge thing that you just uh, commented on. Starting in early education. What's our relationship with nature and early education? Of course, everything starts there. And having extra recess and things like this is definitely a core part of it. But I would argue in the working world, it's not the employer's responsibility for you to get connected with nature. I mean, you're only there. <laughs> you're only supposed to be there eight hours a day. You know, I know everyone doesn't have that set up, and that's a different conversation. But let's say you were running a company. You had 300 employees. Everyone shows up nine to five. What they do outside of that nine to five is strictly up to them. I think the ways that you could meet in the middle is by having a work environment with windows, with a breeze that doesn't feel unnatural. I mean, there is a sensation on our bodies when we like brush past something unnatural compared to when we're walking on wood or walking on cement. There's a difference. There's, there's, a, there's a relationship there because when I see wood, I see a beautiful house, a beautiful office that's built naturally, that has the right color, that's well lit, that's not unnaturally lit, no, no fluorescence, which is terrible for our eyes and our biology. There's this enormous change in terms of how I resort to that space. So things like that, it should be the employer's responsibility, but we need to do it ourselves. We just live in a crazy city. Sure. I would say, I agree with you that we can't really, I think if we uh, force by legislation, okay, you must give all employees a two hour outdoor break or something, there'd be a huge backlash. And I, I totally get that. I will share from my experience, I used to work uh, a while ago back in Tribeca. And, you know, sort of where the World Trade Center is. And sometimes during my lunch break, I would walk all the way to the West Side Highway, especially when the weather was nicer. And I would see people having picnics. I would see other uh, folks, you know, having their lunch break and eating outside. And I, I found that to be really, really, really helpful. Yes, I did towards the end of my lunch break kind of lament, ah, I got to go back to this uh, stupid office building or whatever. But I think just being able to go outside 
helped a lot and perhaps made me more productive when I came back. So I'm wondering if we sold this idea to employers of like, let your employees kind of have a little picnic, let them kind of go outside. They're going to come back rejuvenated. They're going to come back even more productive than yeah. if they're just eating a tuna fish sandwich behind their computer desk and just work, 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 work. Because the idea of like the eight hours, and, and this is what I always feel, is that the goal is is not to just stretch out that eight hours and, and sort of get like, right. it's like, it's not like squeezing a sponge, like let's just get right. all the water out of this person. It's let's set up that eight hours or, or less or, or more in an optimal way where that person's the most productive. And if having a two hour outdoor experience creates that and then there is there is I, I know that in spain they have sort of the uh the siesta system where they will actually depart from work for like two hours and they'll take a nap or something and then they come back rejuvenated in the evening i'm wondering if that would be helpful yeah that sounds amazing um i think creating a structure that isn't so wringing out the sponge as you described uh, the squeezing out of things is definitely the right idea but already we've shifted our conversation from uh, a, a tactic that alienates people into really comparing similarities to how things grow. Mm. You plant a seed, it has certain needs. You need to water it. You need to give it sun. You need to give it space. You need to let it do its own thing. It knows what it's doing. You got to provide that environment. I think if companies were to take more of that attitude, of course, absolutely, that would drastically change a lot. And like even what you just said, about getting sun. Like we know that we need vitamin D. We, we need to get that sunlight into our system. And there is something called, uh, you know, seasonal depression, whereas, uh, especially when you're living in places where, like in the Northeast, I know that in the winter, the sun's just not out that much. And if you have to be at work very early, the sun's not up, and then you stay late, the sun's already gone. You may have gone the whole day without any sunlight at all. And that's something that we're not even considering when we go to work, that you're spending the whole day with no sunlight at all. And that, that's the complete opposite of how our ancestors lived, where work was completely outside and they had constant sunlight. Yeah, that messes with me, honestly. If, I don't, if, I don't, if I'm not out in the sun at some point, if I'm not getting a breeze on my face, if I'm not listening to some birds chirp and things like that, it can be very difficult for me. I'm just kind of a nature guy, quite frankly. All of that is, should be a key part of a human being's daily life. And it is definitely a struggle for a lot of people here in New York City because that's the trade-off. Coincidentally, the trade-off is massive and, and a, lot of, a lot of times completely worth the sacrifice. I wonder why we built it that way. I, I think if we, I mean, if we think of like the industrial age, it was just it was a necessity to have people near factories, right? And like we couldn't, you couldn't, it wasn't, it wasn't feasible to just have little tiny factories in, in the small communities that people live. So the industrialists came together and they were like, okay, we're gonna have this one giant factory and then we're gonna build it in a place where we can highly concentrate workers so that they can get there quickly and expediently and so forth. And I'm not saying that that's evil or bad. It's just, that was the necessity at the time. At the necessity, we needed factories and we needed workers to fill those factories up and cities were the best way to do that. I'm wondering now uh, with the expansion that most of our work is in the service area and some, and a lot of this work can be performed remotely. If, if there can be 
a return to people spreading out a lot more and being able to have more environment now that the work can be performed remotely. You know, there's some people who are doing that very successfully. Um, I don't know if you've ever looked into this just on a whim, but the whole van life, the whole sailing life. I mean, there are a lot of people that just circumnavigate the world, either, you know, on a, on a, this beautiful sailboat that they bring <laughs> their families with and travel to plenty of different places in the Mediterranean or go across the ocean. People do that full time and they work strictly from there. There's one family, I forget where from, but this guy was a software engineer in Arizona and he got this like 32 long boat that had two masts, not that big. And he now lives with his Swedish wife who he met in Sweden when he sailed. And now they have a, I think a two year old, baby on board and the the entire life is centered around living on this boat and they're just constantly sailing and they've sailed enough now to circumnavigate the world three times whoa insane amount so they're they're Um, like magellan times three like they're like like magellan (laughs) times three. so Um, uh, 20 years on that thing i have a lot of questions about that i don't know how much you can answer but so did this guy sell his house so his he he, or because like i imagine you would need a lot of capital in order to Mm -hmm. buy a boat sufficient enough so he sells his house and this the the boat becomes his primary home and he just uh like how does he get mail or 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 how does he get food i'm wondering like how how he does that so their food is one of the best parts they have an amazing refrigeration system their entire kitchen is actually on a gimbal so when you're on the stove and the ship's going up and down because the stove is on a gimbal, it's just going to stay relatively level. So the whole ship can be tilting up and down, but their stove is going to remain in balance. So he, he did an amazing job constructing this. And it's by no means some like rickety boat. Yeah. So you can tell he put some hard-earned dollars into that. And that is definitely necessary to, to, to sail. Sure. But he has a lot of his food um, refrigerated. He catches fish does as much as they can but a lot of the times they just land on a random island and just live there for like a month land on a random island and and they and they do they hunt the food on that island and bring it back to the boat is that what they do i would imagine he fishes often okay Um, i didn't really break down the way he set up his food but his trips are fairly long i mean he has enough to feed him his wife and his baby so they seemed very comfortable, not worried about food. It wasn't a logistical issue. It wasn't something that they had to really go over. They have a washing machine huh. on the sailboat because they don't want to hand wash paper diapers and build up trash. So they've really broken it down to a basic science. And I'm not saying this is the way that I want to live. Yeah. But there are people who do that and they find this interesting balance between connecting with the earth in a way that probably chimes how their ancestors did when when you mentioned this my my thoughts immediately went to the ancient like like pirates explorers traders all of whom kind of mastered the sea and they also lived months and months and months on end uh without touching land and i'm wondering like when these first 
uh, like cross Atlantic boats came like after Columbus and you got all of these cross Atlantic boats. I'm wondering if people thought that was unnatural. Like may maybe people were also like, Hey, man is not supposed to be sailing on this like wooden thing for months at end. That's unnatural. Like, like man needs to be on firm land. So I I'm wondering if there was like opposition to that. Well, I would say cross Atlantic was happening way before Columbus. Yeah, way. yeah, sure. But if we're talking commercial liners, you know, where you're getting shipped over to France, um, I know John Adams. I think it took him three and a half months. John Adams, when he went over to visit France, and he stayed there for like two and a half years, away from his wife. It was a very famous set of letters they would send each other, and resembling as wife up, wife above reproach. I think is the term that they called it. I imagine that was extremely unnatural. I yeah. imagine being on that is extremely isolating. It's not something I would want to do. I mean, you have all of your food stuck in barrels. You're constantly moving. I would be getting very seasick. But at the same time, there's a sense of freedom. Mm, yeah. I think it's flying. You could say the same thing. It's definitely more fun than sailing. Let's be real, flying. But <laughs> you have a sense of freedom. I mean, you're not able to actually fly. One thing goes wrong. You're barreling down into the earth into your death but it's an amazing thing to do so i think they looked at it like flying where it was the thing that made them feel free so uh, there yeah. was a sense of freeness but in a lot of ways that's resemblant of many natural things i mean the galapagos islands a lot of the ways that those reptiles even got to the galapagos in the first place is that by some miracle of nature one just clung on to a piece of, this is the theory, of course, it's not proven. One particular species or two particular species clinged on to a piece of driftwood and then just by current happened to be taken to an island where they landed and developed a means to keep themselves alive. Hmm. But frankly, that sounds like a really ridiculous Darwinian theory, but I don't know if we have anything better. So that's just what science says. So in a way, maybe it is natural for someone Good. to hop on a boat and float. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's, I, I think the, I, I've seen this map before of the earth when we were like Pangea and all the continents were like connected to one another. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there has been like this resistance of, okay, uh, like these land masses are separate, just stay, like stay in your lane and so forth. But if you actually think about the origins of the earth, like we were one giant landmass and then continental drift just, just separated all of us. So it's kind of natural for us as humans to want to connect with every, every acre that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just a technological necessity that turned into this relentless exploration pursuit. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is unique to humanity. I also, when I'm thinking about uh, John Adams, like you just described, who left his wife for three and a half months, I also have this idea that when people wrote letters back then, they really had to make it count because you knew, you knew that that, like if you were writing a letter to your wife, you knew that that letter could get lost. She might, you might not get a response for two months or something. So you had to be very, very, very precise with your words. You had to be really eloquent. Whereas now when we have text messaging and we have all of these quick instant forms of communication, we tend to not miss people as much. And we tend to take for granted with what we say because we're like, oh, well, I'll just send, if I say this wrong, I'll just send another text or whatever. This is part of the biggest allure for me and the romance of history where there seems to be a deeper sense of gravitas and purpose to just basic tasks. Yes. 
Whereas nowadays it feels far more consumer hollow. I mean, classic example is that new documentary that came out, The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you've seen this. No, I haven't. It's a documentary about all the creators of social media and the innovators of this communication tool. And I guess the new way of sending a letter. And it was all the VPs, all the creators, all the main engineers, they all got together and decided that they've built the most inappropriate tool for human connection possible. And that there's no social accountability for this whatsoever. And that actually they recommend that no one uses it. And they recommend that an enormous change be instituted into the machinations of how these things work so that it's not taking advantage of humanity in such a way. So groundbreaking documentary um and they're talking about this the the the, the hollowness of the of purpose behind right i mean i i almost wonder if if like if let's just say we return to to letter writing again i'm i'm wondering if that would really bring us together because first off it takes a great deal of work you have to like write it out and you know you're not going to just send one sentence in the mail right but like with twitter mm -hmm. it's one sentence and you're done boop i press send <laughs> right. but with a letter you're not going to write a sentence and then mail that thing off so you have to write out a good you know four or five paragraphs of your thoughts you gotta get out of your house go to the mailbox put a you know a stamp on it and mm -hmm. i'm wondering if we return to more naturalistic forms of communication if that will actually improve the way we engage with people. Well, this is why I love podcasting is that exact reason. It's the perfect infusion of being able to mobilize communication, but also centering it in a way that's very organic and rooted in those subconscious needs that we have as human beings. Um, I think writing letters would be a tremendous change. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like writing letters. I take pages out of my journal. I fold it up nicely. I do the whole threefold. I make sure that it's to who it's written to is written now so that they can open up in the old school way. I love that. I just think that there's something to it that I enjoy, you know, and it would be great if everyone did it, but also can we do things like this anymore? Or is that an added choice? I mean, in terms of what's nuts and bolts, right? You know, I, I'll, I'll say this, like, okay, are we, I'll be realistic with you. Are we going back to letter writing? Probably not. But here's something really practical we could do. I think instead of text messaging, let's get into the habit of phone calls and let's get back into the habit of nicely written emails. We can at least, like, if it, let, let's compromise here. If we're not going to go to the mailbox, let's try and elongate these conversations and make them as impactful and as meaningful as humanly possible. And it's okay if it takes 24 hours or 48 hours to respond with a nicely thought out email than a ambiguous, very lazy written text message. I think that's like at least something we could do. That'd be great. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alex, it was fantastic having you on the show once again. Thank you. Thank you very much. This concludes the 25th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.